OTB AM. Thanks to Screwfix.ie. Championing the trade with a dedicated call centre. And a very good morning to you. We now live in the post-Mourinho era at Manchester United. Still no full official confirmation that it's going to be Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but uh, yesterday the Norwegian Prime Minister was like, oh, what a great day for Norwegian football. So maybe he seems to know something that the uh, rest of the world didn't know. Owen, how are you? Very well, how are you? Coming to grips with the end of Jose Mourinho in our lives? I think so. I think I'm just about... The grip has just been uh, applied, and I now realise that Jose Mourinho has done probably the last time you'll see him in Premier League football, unless this Wolves project perhaps turns into something that every Portuguese man, woman and kid is so proud of, that Jose Mourinho is like, yes, I will come back and manage you to Premier League glory. But that would be rather ridiculous, so I think we're not going to see Jose Mourinho in the Premier League ever again. I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, Where's the reputation still so high that he's going to get like one of the best jobs and the money in the Premier League is always going to be more than everywhere else. So, you know, would you take ten million a year from Wolves, or do you stick around and try and get like somehow get the Real Madrid job again the next time there's a crisis? The thing is, does any Premier League club want Jose Mourinho to manage them at this point? Does any club that wants to keep some sort of harmony in their dressing room alive and well want to employ Jose Mourinho? Probably not. Probably not. It's probably a fair point. Uh, you were presenting. You're the hardest working man in showbiz. Presenting Thank yesterday you. morning, last True. night, all day. So how are you feeling? I've said everything I've had to say about Jose Mourinho. I've got nothing new and interesting to say about Shut him. Shut up. That's not, exactly, <laughs> that's not exactly convincing people to uh, tune in on Periscope, on YouTube and uh, on Facebook this morning. Leave us a comment wherever you are. We have uh, quite the show coming up for you today. Um, a few people who haven't had everything that they've uh, had to say about Jose Mourinho. Uh, we're going to hear from them a little bit later on. Mark Goldbridge of the United Stand is uh, going to join us just around 8 o'clock. Uh, Dan McDonald's going to join us a little bit later on. We had him in uh, scheduled to talk about his um, highlights of the year, but he's also helpfully written a piece about five players that need to get the uh, bullet from Man United straight away so we'll talk to him about that a little bit later on as well and there's a roundup of GAA stories a lot of them to do with finance and um, in particular the stories in Cork GAA around the amount of money that has been poured into what now appears to be the black hole of Porky Cueve and then there's also reports emerging from Galway of personal expenses being paid for by a uh, Galway County Board credit card. So we'll get some more details on that for you a little bit later on on the show as well. And um, what else we got there? That's pretty much it, because let's face it, there's only one show in town. Let's bring you through the newspapers this morning. Um, I'm going to start with the uh, broadsheets, um, which I hopefully don't have. I do have a, a Irish Times. Yeah, there it is. Special one lost faith in the myth of his own genius. There did seem to be a bit where he could no longer just kind of magic results or magic performances from players in a way that certainly in the early days he was capable of doing that. And then they are also reporting that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is in line to become the caretaker manager. Um, that idea of not being able to magic results is obviously to do with his relationship with certain players. But the thing is, the relationships have broken down at such a number of levels now, from Real Madrid to Chelsea's second stint, to the second year in Chelsea's second stint, to Manchester United now, that the fault is clearly Jose Mourinho's. What happened the first year in Chelsea that he was able to still do it? I don't Fear? really understand. Was they just, were they scared of him? I don't know. Like, I mean, all of these things are relatively complicated. It's always cartoonish the way it's reported in the newspapers, that it's just um, one aspect of it. But that team played good football. That Chelsea team? Yeah. Well, they won a Premier League title. They, they, they can't have played dreadful football. And I, I never really thought that Pete Jose was that awful to watch. Maybe Inter Milan was 
probably the nadir of, of peak Jose Mourinho and even then there was a novelty value to that because and, Inter had been winning championships and exactly and they were like a you know not a great team no. on the face of it it looked like here was a, a team who were never going to be able to compete at that level and there's something special about that but so there's the famous story in Lampard's book about um, Lampard's in the shower and Jose comes in and he's in the shower so he's naked and Jose kind of grabs him by the face and goes oh, I'm going to make you the best footballer in the world you're going to be the best footballer in the world and Lampard's like yeah I and then goes off and becomes like the best goal-scoring midfielder in the world, right? <laughs> Lampard writes it in his book as being a special moment in his life, as in, this guy gave me confidence. And obviously there was 6,000 different ways he gave him confidence, apart from embracing him naked. I'm sure that there were... And Frank Lampard's insane talent and the fact that he was about to become one of the best Premier League players anyway probably helped. I know Jose Mourinho probably accelerated that and the fact that he had a sensational team, particularly behind him, allowed Lampard to become the attacking midfielder that he had. Every, everybody improved at that team under Lampard. Like, every, Jose, everybody yeah. under Jose, sorry. Um, like, and that was a really amazing team. There's no question about that. Brilliant defence, brilliant attack, and, and capable of, like, scoring goals from everywhere, uh, from each um, level in the team. So there was something amazing about that. And his success followed him like everywhere he went I mean you, know, you guys were having the debate last night about whether or not Real Madrid was a, a success or not like he was up against the greatest team of all time yeah and he, yeah. he, he stopped them winning a league yeah it's, it's a fair like, point the, that Barcelona side will come to be viewed as the greatest football team in the history of the planet with no exceptions like like my, my opinion on this has gone on a journey over the last 24 hours that like yesterday I know we had an argument about Paul Pogba and the quality of player that exists in the Manchester United squad and I really was of the opinion that the Manchester United players are far better than Jose Mourinho was was getting out of them but then again you look at them and say you t- take John Terry Frank Lampard Didier Drogba from that Chelsea team who are you comparing them to Phil Jones Paul Pogba Romelu Lukaku like no matter what manager is managing those three players, you're probably going to take the Chelsea equivalent. Oh, 100%. And yeah. there's probably a bit of distance between them. And I know we're judging, like recency bias dictates that we're judging Paul Pogba based on what he's done this season, post-World Cup even. So it's perhaps that unfair. But I'm starting to lose this belief that these Manchester United players really are as good as I previously thought they were. Like, we will see. It's Time will tell. I think... I think that even if they're not as good as those players, he's not getting the best out of them. Yeah. So his ability to get the best out Where's of those that? players, he got the very best out of Didier Drogba, he got the very best out of Frank Lampard, and everybody else, who all the ancillary. Like, there was a couple of duds on that team. Was Alexis Smirton in that team? I mean... Putting I mean, me on the spot here. You watch the Premier League here sometimes, you're like, that guy played under Mourinho. Oh, okay. There was definitely, there was definitely a few duds that kind of came in and were just role players who actually ended up winning back-to-back... Um, League titles. Like, when you t- talk about dull players, there's very few. Like, I think it's someone like Yuri Zhirkov or something like that. And the, the pl- players of that ilk yeah. uh, had that tended to kind of pop up out of nowhere and were very, very effective. But, like, many managers, that, that's a sign of a good manager. Like, Antonio Conte, you could suggest, did it to even greater effect with Chelsea in terms of what he did with the likes of Victor Moses and Marcus Alonso. Now, Alonso has obviously changed uh, a little bit, and he's obviously, turns out he's actually a very, very good football yeah, player. Yeah, yeah. He, he just was, um, you know, he had, he had other stuff in his mind that was preventing him from becoming a world-class footballer. Yes. Uh, Jose, uh, like, the, the idea that he can't, he doesn't have this kind of secret sauce to get the best out of his players, maybe it's just 
uh, different dynamics in the dressing room these days. But like, is it really as simple as that to say, well, player power is a more prominent part of football these days? I football would say, players are into social media, not uh, and uh, Frank Lampard didn't have an Instagram account. It, that just seems very basic. It, there's something else there. Yeah, change in Jose Mourinho. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably as well. Pochettino wants the job. This is the big headline in the back of the Times London edition. Sorry, the uh, Times Ireland edition this morning. Uh, this is Matt Hughes, Paul Hurst and Martin Ziegler, the three of them reporting that, um, well, yeah, I wouldn't mind the Man United job. Not a bad bargaining position to be in. You're heading to the new stadium eventually after a massive cost overrun. You've got a good team, but you've got a very, very scabby ownership system who does not want to spend any money. They don't want to spend any money on any players. They don't even want to pay their own players the market rate. And they've done a great job in negotiating knockdown deals. And you're like... I can go to Man United and they're going to give me 500 million and they're going to make me 20 million a year. 500 million? Whatever. Oh, sorry, to spend on players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it won't be far off it. Pochettino, if he stays at Man United for three seasons, will probably end up spending about 500 million. But anyway, I'm making it up, right? What do you do if you're Daniel Levy? You, well, you ask Manchester United for 100 million pounds to purchase Maurizio Pochettino because it seems Manchester United are fairly willing to pay a substantial sum uh, for anything that's going to give them a better chance of not being embarrassed. I hadn't seen this reported anywhere and hadn't noticed it up until this point. Mourinho was sacked in a face-to-face meeting with Edward Ward, United's uh, executive vice chairman at the club's training centre yesterday, after a miserable first half of the season. Next line. United share price in the New York Stock Exchange rose by about 5% in morning trading, adding £119 million sterling or $150 million. We got the money back straight away. That's, you could buy three Mauricio <coughs> Pochettinos with that market uh, share increase yesterday. That, like... Um, I mean, that is, that is the nutshell of this whole thing right there. Those two lines is like, what's the impact it's going to have? They're not like... Well, in particular, the whole idea of the £7 million being a realistic factor in terms of saving themselves £7 million by sacking him after they get knocked out of the Champions League, that was never going to be a factor. It's Manchester United. £7 million is nothing. Yeah, well, they, they got it back straight away. Ole, early favourite to replace Mourinho. I'm surprised that they're still betting on that because um, certainly there was some stuff on the Man United website last night which was, was just throwback to like Solskjaer's best bits, you know, just in case. Good content. If you're Man United, if you're running that Man United website and you've got no information beyond what you're being told, then it's like, I'm going to bang up some more leg stuff here. My clicks are through the roof. Yeah. Got to get those KPIs. Uh, Scoo, why Thistle can pr- prove a Christmas cracker. So Tom Scudamore believes Thistle Crack can improve past the rivals who beat him in the Betfair chase when the pair team up again in the King George VI chase at Kempton next Wednesday. Next Wednesday is Stephen's Day. You ready for this? Am I ready for Christmas slash Stephen's Day? Uh, not at all, actually. No. Is there any gift ideas? Or like generic Did you not people? do a whole show on gift ideas last week? Yeah, but like... Yeah, I probably will just end up buying that sort of stuff, to be honest. I don't know. Like, I missed it. What did you do? What were you talking about? Well, we, we, we spoke... We played PlayStation, basically. Right. And uh, there was a Google Home. Can you get PlayStation for your man? Does that work? See, that's the thing. I, I, don't, I don't want to say who I'm Try trying that. to buy for. But... Uh, Ooh. Who is this new lady you're buying for? No, that's that's not that's not what I'm trying to say whatsoever. I'm saying that uh, I mean, I'm not buying a PlayStation for my mad. You're, you're like you just said, now, what's going on? I'm not. You're buying a sports gift for the significant other in your life. I'm trying to what buy something for my mother. Now you've given it away, Jared. I haven't bought anything for her. Um, what do you want? What do you want, Mrs. Sheehan? Tell us. Uh, that's a wrap. United call time. Mourinho's Liverpool stuffing proves too much to swallow. Yeah, you know. Okay. 
Forget Jose United can learn from the Reds and Merseyside. I know, it's great. The Liverpool fans are just, oh, they're just, oh, look. All, all week you're giving out about club, he's won nothing. And now it's, oh, we want Pochettino, but he's won nothing. Oh. Well, the, you forgot about the key part of the Irish Examiner this morning. Liam Brady is saying that Arsene Wenger should be installed as temporary manager of Manchester United. I mean, the best trolling that everybody's... You would say it's trolling from everybody except Paul Ince, who I presume doesn't really want to troll Man United. Or maybe he does. Maybe he's bitter about the fact that he got shown the door and then the team went on to be uh, the most successful team in the history of English football. Does Paul Ince like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? They, never, they weren't teammates, were they? They didn't... They, that didn't... Did they cross over? I don't think so. If it was, it was very brief. But like, I do wonder if Paul Ince kind of views uh, a player like Solskjaer as someone who kind of took what they did and moved it on to the next level of greatness. And there's a sense of bitterness there because we kind of viewed all that group of players as uh, as the one whereas like the, the Inces and the Bruces and the Solskjaers and the Roy Keynes and there's kind of a, a, dif- a differentiation in era there like because Paul Ince is saying go for Steve Bruce forget Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in the Steve, papers this Steve Bruce has just come off the back of one of the best managerial you know he was such a brilliant Aston Villa manager that team played amazing football really rallied the crowd behind them nobody threw a cabbage at him uh, in the middle of a game <laughs> like I mean come on I am as likely to get the Man United job as Steve Bruce is at this point. Well, you, I would say I'm more likely to get the Man United job than Steve Bruce at this point. What are the odds on Jura Gilroy this morning, I do wonder? Uh, back page of the Irish Daily Mail is Jose out, Poch in, Mourinho sacked on tumultuous day. United will today name Solskjaer as caretaker. At the back page of the Herald is Ole Gunnar step in, Pochettino is long-term target, while United had to get rid of Mourinho, says John Aldridge. Uh, the back page of the Mirror is an interesting one. High fives from stars as Jose gets the axe. Pogba's joy in training after a special one is sacked. So uh, John Cross and Steve Bates saying that Paul Pogba led dressing room celebrations yesterday after the news broke that Jose Mourinho was going to be sacked as United manager. He had been involved in a long-running feud with Mourinho, as we well know. He posted something on social media yesterday which said, caption this, kind of giving a... Uh, giving the come to bed eyes to the camera, uh, he was uh, he was looking very very pleased indeed, and then said, "Adi, that's like actually this was a pre-planned sponsorship post." And uh, Gary, uh, Gary Neville responded, "Was a caption this? You get out as well, or something to that effect." The United dressing room could not contain their relief at his departure. One source said, "The move from one day to the next was like night and day. The players were happy again, and they all lived happily ever after at Manchester United." Back page of the Irish Daily Star is Potters in pole position. Solskjaer set to be installed as interim boss while Jose hits the road after United axe. Uh, also, dubs ignore shit talk. Mickey Whelan says it's bullshit to say Dublin will be affected by talk of five in a row. Some hard-hitting stuff from Mickey Whelan, which we'll come back to later on. Uh, back page of the Sun is waste of space. And then Solskjaer in for now, but Potch this space. Spurs boss not ruling out United. And then it's kind of like an Andy Warhol painting on the back of The Guardian this morning. End of an aura. How Mourinho lost his shine at United. Daniel Taylor and uh, Barney Ronay amongst the voices writing this morning. Yeah, good headline there. End of an aura. Um, two quick comments for you. Um, there are Qatar World Cup workers who work less hours than Owen Sheehan. Uh, the carry true. <clears throat> they, get, they get away scot-free, those fellas. Your agent, uh, Dicker Forum, has been on. And then he's also pointed out, Yuri Yarisic uh, won a league title. Did Yuri play enough games to win a league title under Mourinho? And Thiago, I don't think Thiago was as bad as everybody. I think in the, in the modern era, Thiago would get a lot of stats and he would never give the ball away and he would make some tackles and you'd be like, ah, that's exactly what we need in midfield. Like Manny Matic. Uh, yeah, I mean, Thiago's like a smaller Matic with, you know, He's less, he's less, um, less Serbian. Less, he kind of it puts less of a fear of God into you. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you can give us your comments or you can give out about us if you want uh, on Twitter, at Off The Ball. Uh, you can complain about us too on our own Twitter handle, at Off The Ball AM, or you can uh, leave a comment for us in the YouTube stream. Um, and now we have, I'm delighted to say, Mark Goldbridge uh, with us from the United Stand. Mark, good morning to you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good, thanks you. Yeah, well, we're, we're very interested to see what your response has been like over the last 24 hours to the news that Mourinho has gone first. I mean, we'll talk about the potential replacements and whether or not an interim manager is the right way to go and who that should be. But, um, you know, what, what was your take? What was the eventual tipping point that forced the Manchester United board and ownership to move? Um, well, what we're hearing now is it's the old uh, traditional player power that maybe Edward would spoke to some players on Monday and that was it. I mean, obviously running a fan channel, I think that they should be more aware of the fan uh, opinion because we're the ones who pay the wages. We're the one who pays uh, Woodward's wages. And I think the fans tipping point was probably two, three months ago, sometime, some back to Sevilla last season. But I think it became untenable. I, I think it should be written in stone, really. If you go to Anfield and put in a performance like that, you should be sacked. And uh, I think enough was enough. And I, I'm quite surprised the board did it when they did. I, I thought they would uh, wait longer. So I, I'm really pleased and was quite surprised yesterday morning that they'd done it. Do you have any sympathy for Jose Mourinho at this point? I do, but that's because I'm an empathetic person and I think anybody who loses the job, I just always feel sorry for them. But actually, I need to sweep that aside because um, I think that the the opportunity he had um, will go down as a failure at Manchester United and he should have done better, I believe, with what what he had. And he, and he he, he didn't achieve the things that he said. I mean, one of the biggest ones for me is I'll leave this club in a better position than I inherited it. And I think that that is clearly not the case. How bad a position are they in? How many years has he rewound the clock on Manchester United, Mark? I think there's an interesting point, and I think you know Liverpool fans would probably be good to ask about this as well, is that if you look at what United achieved under Mourinho, second place, Europa League, Carabao Cup, Liverpool haven't achieved any trophies in the last couple of years, neither of Spurs, but would they want what they've got now over what United have? And would United fans want what Liverpool have got over what we achieved? And I think the big thing at United is the style of football. And yeah, we came second and yeah, we won the Europa League, but the football was never good enough. And I personally would rather have what Liverpool have got than have those trophies because we've won trophies in the past. And I think when you say how far have they knocked us back, I, I think that... I think Moyes was obviously a disaster, but I think we were in a better position under Van Hal than we were Mourinho. So I think he has knocked us back probably to maybe after David Moyes. I think we're probably back there again. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, like the one, the one issue that we're trying to wrestle with at the moment is how good or bad are the, are the current players? Like if, if the right manager came in, injected a style of play, added a few signings, is that okay, or does this entire squad need massive remedial action? Do half the squad need to go, for example? I, I've been saying for a while that I think if you put uh, whoever the manager is, somebody who's just got the right sort of Manchester United uh, mentality to, to go on the front foot, I think that there is a very good eleven there. I think you know if you look at players that aren't getting game time, and yeah, they've got to step up to the plate now. And, and Paul Pogba is obviously the one that people be watching, but people like Eric Bailly, Fred, and Andres Pereira. Um, Alexis Sanchez, I think Rashford, Martial, Lingard. Yeah, they've had flashes, but you'd expect more from them. You've got the young right back that Mourinho did get hold of, Luke Shaw. Um, obviously, you've got the best goalkeeper in the world. So there's the, 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 fundamentally a good team there. I do think if you want to challenge Man City and Liverpool, that money needs to be spent, maybe two or three, maybe four players. But that team's definitely a top four team. And um, it's definitely better than what, what than what we've seen under Mourinho. So I'm optimistic. 
What did you think Gary Neville meant on Sunday on Sky Sports when he said that the club should press the or the, the club needs to press the reset button? How deep a change does that mean? Like, what does the pressing the reset button mean? I think that means top to bottom. I think that means players, manager, coaching staff, and the board. Um, I think you know Gary Neville's a very uh, very good pundit and um, he's a very passionate Manchester United fan. I don't agree with everything he said. I don't agree with what he said about Paul Pogba yesterday, but I do believe that that Manchester United's problems aren't just at Jose Mourinho's door. I think you sort of need to separate the two when you've got a bad performing team, you've got bad football, you you know you are where you are in the league, and you've got transfer players turning against you. That's that's a football decision. Sacking Mourinho was right, but there is a bigger issue at Manchester United. There are no leaders throughout the club. I think the neglect of a captaincy has been poor from Mourinho. We do need lack leaders on the pitch. Players' heads go down, and above that, the board is an issue. But I always say the board was an issue when we won the Champions League. The board was an issue when we won Premier Leagues. It's the same board. I think people have sort of confused the, the the performance on the pitch with with the board the board did deliver to Mourinho more than enough for him to do better but it would be nice to have owners who who are focused on the football side and not focused on not being United fans but just just their bank account so yeah I think that's what what Gary Neville's talking about there the way the club's being run isn't the best you say you disagreed with his point on Paul Pogba how so I just think that but I actually do respect what Gary Neville did because he stuck to his guns on Sky Sports last night by saying that, you know, I don't buy the, the, the scheduled uh, Instagram post by Pogba. I think it was unprofessional. And there is talk this morning that the club are going to find Pogba for that. So I just think that at the timing of Gary Neville, who's very, very got a big sway with the United fans coming out after the manager's been sacked and sort of going in on Paul Pogba. I just felt that that wasn't the time. I think Mourinho's gone. All players deserve another chance. You know, I'm not a big fan of Matic and Lukaku, but I will give them time under a new manager because it's a new system. I just felt that, you know, Mourinho's gone, that negativity's gone, let's all come together. And Gary Neville comes out with, you can do one as well. But on the other hand, I think it's great when you get a pundit who's basically saying, I don't really rate Paul Pogba, I like him out of the club, because at least it's honest. I just, I, I just personally think we might see the best of Paul Pogba now. Well, the thing is, like Paul Pogba says that post was scheduled. The Mirror this morning are reporting that there was a lot of high fives uh, at the dressing at the training ground yesterday, and Paul Pogba was uh, leading the, the celebrations, really, if you want to use that word, after Jose Mourinho was gone. Like you say, you're an empathetic person. Surely you've got some empathy for poor Jose Mourinho out the door, and they're immediately celebrating behind his back. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'd I have to concede that I do. I, I, I do. I just think that I suppose when you flip it the other way is Mourinho's gone now, and at least, at least it confirms what what many of us felt that the players weren't happy under Jose Mourinho, and that he was suppressing them. I've read some comments today that you know four letter words have been described to to uh, from amongst the Manchester United players to describe Jose Mourinho, and there was clearly a lot going on there. Look, at the end of the day, I just I, I, I'm a big fan of Paul Pogba's. I think that, you know, now is the time I'm not gonna say it's gonna work, but now is the time where the eyes are on him. He's got no excuses. If he's inconsistent under another manager, then like Roy Keane says, I agree, he's got to go. But I think we'll see the best of Pogba now. And I think that um I just think that the the United fan base hopefully will will just be united by a bit of positivity for a while because it has been toxic and dividing the fan base I think is never good when, when, when we're turning a new page hopefully. It had it had been um, toxic but not it hadn't really there hadn't been this outpouring from the fans to get Mourinho out which you see very regularly at a lot of clubs it, it almost seemed as if there was um, not an acceptance but a, a boredom with what was going on and it, it was frustration as opposed to outright naked anger against Mourinho. Yeah, definitely. Apathy was the word I used a lot. I mean, 
on the United stand, we do do the fan cams after the games and you do get a few people coming on and, and being frustrated. But the general feeling was one. I mean, I was up at the Crystal Palace game and, you know, people were leaving with 15 minutes to go, which for a United fan, I, I think and even I thought we would score in the last minute, maybe Fellaini go off his, you know, shin or something. So there, there was definitely in the ground a, a real um, sort of resignation that it wasn't good enough. But yeah, I, I still think United are one of those clubs where booing is, is is something they're not comfortable with and um look i i think heard things like yesterday that the price the stock price has gone up but to me that's not important what i saw yesterday was that suddenly people are interested in manchester united again that huddersfield game on boxing day will be a sellout it wouldn't have been and and i think that the owners of the club need to understand that footballing decisions will make them money if they get a positive vibe around manchester united again then they'll make money. And I think they need to understand that. Who's going to bring that positive vibe? Who do you want to be the next full-time manager? And it looks like the the deal to get the interim manager in place is largely done. People are reporting it largely as a done deal for Solskjaer at the moment. Is the interim decision the right one? And who do you want long-term? I think uh, long-term, I would I, I like I like Zidane. Um, I think he's... I disagree with people what they say about Real Madrid. I think Zidane's a, a good manager and he's done very well at Real Madrid and this is a good ta- challenge for him. I like Laurent Blanc um, and Pochettino wouldn't bother me too much either. I think, um, you know, they're, they're all... I think it's the type of football that Manchester United need to play that's important. The short-term one's interesting. Solskjaer, if somebody had said that to me 24 hours ago, I'd have laughed. I mean, you look at what he did at Cardiff. Um, you know, Norwegian League is, is that much of a gauge. But I almost feel that... What they're trying to do, I hope, is get somebody who will play or try and play attacking football, somebody who will unite the fan base, somebody who understands what the club's all about. And I just look at that as, look, would you rather Solskjaer for five months or Mourinho? And I'd rather have Solskjaer for five months because Mourinho had run his cause. And it's a freebie, really. I don't expect us to get top four. I don't expect us to win the Champions League. So, you know, I think think United fans will be patient. It might not work, but I think we're already looking at next season anyway. Yeah, like I, I do wonder to what level is the clear out required, Mark? Because, like, you take someone like Phil Jones, for example, who you would say should be in and around the squad at all at, at all times. He should either be in the matchday squad. Some would say he should actually be starting for Manchester United. It depends on where you actually go. Like you've been quite critical of him yourself. Like you called him like a cat trying to bury a shit in a marble floor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I think this goes before Mourinho, so I'm not going to uh, criticise Mourinho for this. And there were rumours that he, he was trying to ship players out, but Woodward would, wouldn't do it because he wanted certain amounts of money for people like Darmian. I'm not sure Phil Jones was ever on the list, but uh, he should be. I mean, I've always said about Phil Jones, whether he was the reincarnation of Franco Baresi, if he can only play half the games for you, he shouldn't be at the squad. You can't, you know, a centre-back needs to be able to play 90% of the games. And Phil Jones, I think over the last four or five years, has never managed half a, half, half a season for us. So that for me is why, yeah, he's got mistakes in him. But I think... He's symbolic of quite a lot of Deadwood at Manchester United that needs shipping out. And, and apparently they're, chi- they're, they're queuing up for new contracts. You know, people like Ashley Young, Phil Jones, Chris Smalling's just signed one. Um, you know, Antonio Valencia, mm. Fellaini's not, I'm not a fan of here. So I think United need to move a certain type of player out. Um, we've got a lot of good young talent coming through. Maybe we'll see some of that over the next five months. But yeah. as I said before, I think there's the fundamentals of a really good team there. There's just certain players, I think, that have been hanging around the club for too long and... 
it is it is time for a clear out and, and, and a new direction. Yeah, like I just think given the way modern football is and the strength of the squad, you need you now need to have to, I guess, even cement yourself in the top four. Like Phil Jones is, is a viable example. Like Jesse Lingard is another viable example. You've said that he's on Mark Albright and, and Nathan Redmond's level, which to me suggests that he's not a top four player, despite the fact that he plays quite often for Manchester United. Yeah, look, I mean, Jesse Lingard's a player that I've changed my direction on probably numerous times over the last couple of years. Where I would be with Lingard at the moment is, as a brand, I think he's one of the best footballers in the world. As a footballer, I think he's a, he's a bench player. And I think, you know, funnily enough, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer was a bench player at Manchester United. So I think that I wouldn't sell Jesse Lingard. I think, you know, he's, he's from the youth setup. He understands the club. He does give his all. I just so think he's him a on the level tw- of Albright and Nathan Redmond. As a bench player, I think I think you know for I, a top I, four I, team. I think I think I, don't, I mean I actually personally think Nathan Redmond's not a bad player, but I think would you have him on the bench Jesse, for a Champions League team? Long term, probably not. But I think you've got to look over the next two or three years. Are United going to solve their first eleven, let alone their bench? And I think Jesse Lingard gives you something for twenty minutes that we probably don't have enough depth to have at the moment. I think there's more important players to go before Jesse Lingard, but some, a lot of people would disagree with me. They would. Mark, one last thing. Um, we saw when um, Wenger and, and the way that Wenger lasted, we saw the explosion of Arsenal fan TV. Mourinho has probably been pretty good for, for you guys at the United Stand. What happens if the next manager comes in and it's all sweetness and light and everybody's like, well, where, what have we got to be angry about now? To be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm ecstatic. I mean, we've been doing the United Stand for just over three years and, and the biggest growth and, and, and interest we ever had was around the Europa League and the transfer windows, you know, which is positive. So it's been a very interesting, toxic time over the last three months. And yeah, you do get a lot of uh, people watching who are not supporters of your club, but it's also toxic within your fan, your, your normal viewers. So for me, I'm, I'm very, very happy with what's happened. I want positivity. I want this club to get back to where it needs to be. And if that means... We lose Liverpool and Chelsea fans watching us for the laugh, then, you know, so be it. So, yeah, I think Arsenal fan TV obviously did very well out of the Wenger years. But, you know, I think the United stand will be fine with, with the biggest club in the world. And people are always interested in Manchester United. And if we can get back to where we are, I think we'll, we'll all be fine as a fan base, to be honest. Mark, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. No worries. Thank you very much. So Mark Obage there from the United stand. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Mark Albrighton was really good when they won the league. Strong Mark Albrighton. He has one. Like the thing is, he has won a Premier League. Yeah, uh, he's one of the best players. Uh, and his was, form dipped after that. Yeah, dramatically. Uh, like that I, whole team's form dipped. Personally, I think if you're if you're comparing Jesse Lingard, who plays quite a lot for Manchester United, to Mark Albrighton or Nathan Redmond, in my opinion, you don't have a Champions League standard squad. If that, if, in, I think that that's the next step you have to make if if that's your take. Now so, the thing is, I don't think Jesse Lingard is on Mark Albrighton or uh, Nathan Redmond's level. I think he's a bit better than that. I think I'm we've seen sure. that. Well, I think we've seen it last season. Like the jury is still out on, on Lingard. Okay, they, that, I, I don't know what type of player he is. I can't like. What is he? Well, that's uh, you, could, you could also make that same point about Deli Ali. What sort of player is is Deli Ali? That that's what uh, a lot of the criticism is. Like the that kind of is the epitome of what Jose Mourinho's reign has encapsulated, is it not? The idea of what is the identity of this team? What is the identity then of a number of players? Is yeah. Lingard a better number ten or is he a better winger? Who knows? And hopefully. It'll be players like him and players particularly like Rashford and Martial. We know what they're best at, We're getting the best out of them. And like I was making the point yesterday, maybe being overdramatic, but the idea of saving careers actually is, is perhaps something that's high on the agenda of the next Manchester United manager. Because if Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial go through another period of stagnation, 
it's not good news for them, is it? No, but then if they're not up to it, cut base and move on. Well, I think they are up to it. I think talent-wise, I think you have to say it looks that way. Players in particular are have the potential to be world class. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, they do, right? But it's at this at this point, it's still only potential. There's still only flashes of it. Like, I think that if you had a, a manager who believed in both those players and played them every game and gave them a very clearly defined role and said, when you're in possession of the ball, this is what you're supposed to do. When you're out of possession of the ball, this is what you're supposed to do. And drill that into them and put them in a position to succeed, we would then be able to decide how what their ceiling is. But at the moment, it's like, well, <clears throat> great game, great game, terrible game, terrible game, subbed, playing well, subbed, playing well, subbed, great game, Oh, goals but not playing well. It's like, where, where's the pattern? There's no pattern. And uh, I think that was the, the main downfall at this point. There was no pattern to his thought process, to the team, and really, I think, to the management of the club at the level above that. Let's move on, because you were talking to Andy Mitten last night. He had loads of interesting things to say about how Manchester United have been carrying out their business. Have a look. That's when they started looking at a proper director of football. Somebody who knows that Palermo's left-back is the man to buy. And I gave an example in an article recently, which I wrote. A friend of mine's an agent. He's got some very big players. And he went to Manchester, and he met City in the morning and United in the afternoon. And he said City was so well-planned in what they wanted in 12, 18 months, two years. They knew the positions, the age profile. They knew the players they were looking at. And where they didn't, they said to my, my friend who's an agent, Maybe this is a consideration. And then he went to see United, who he said were starstruck by names, who offered the opinion that the teams who win the Champions League are the ones with the five Galacticos. And he came away to me and rang me and said, I know you're a United fan, but you're so far behind Manchester City. This was seven or eight months ago. And now we're seeing that. So there has been a lack of joined up thinking. The club has been extremely well run commercially there's a lot of great people at the football club there really is and there's a lot of people and even Jose Mourinho wanted it to work out but it just was not working out he was in conflict with too many people and when he lost his assistant that made things even worse because he brought other coaches in alongside him but he didn't share the workload he didn't share his opinions did he look a happy man to you because he certainly didn't to me no he didn't um, that is interesting though that uh, there's that disparity between what the football industry thinks of how Man United is being run from a football perspective like just to go back to City briefly um, before they got Guardiola they got Big Airstein and they put that that core of people in who were, was basically laying the pathway for Guardiola so they knew that they could go out and sign players that would be Guardiola style players and when he arrived in he wasn't going to have to completely change the squad there's no sense of that happening at the moment unless this interim period is, that's what that, this is about that actually this six months that they get with Solskjaer or whoever is actually also giving them the six months to find a director of football and then let that person pick Pochettino like, what well, you know there's no strategy if you just hire Pochettino or Laurent Blanc or Zidane. It's the same. You're repeating the same mistake. Same crappy inputs, same crappy outputs. Well, you would have to say that a director of football needs to be appointed extremely soon if they're going to make that fully formed decision, right? Like if The, the thing is, the director of football might well come in and say, Mirko Pochettino is the guy for the job. Yeah, There's probably a good possibility that that is the case. Or, or if you decide you want Pochettino, then you need to get his director of football like it, it can be either way. Like if you decide that he's the world class football manager, that he's the one that you think is going to be the totemic figurehead for the next decades, 
and you need somebody who can negotiate the football contract maelstrom and the world of agents. And so it's not him having his energy sucked by sitting in the meeting with the uh, client banging on about his Galacticos, uh, with the agent banging on about his Galactical clients. Um, I don't know. Just to, You'd like to see that happening or being spoken about by the hierarchy or at least in those briefings that we seem to see a lot of from the Manchester United uh, um, Politburo that they were talking about these things as opposed to oh it'll be grand we'll just get uh, another famous manager Zidane come on you've won loads I wonder if they're like independent auditing companies like they do for finance that, but the football versions of that yeah. where Edward was like I really know nothing I know <laughs> I've got no idea what the hell I'm doing will you come in and have an independent look at who I should actually hire as a director of football like, what's the first step there when you look around yourself and you look around the boardroom and nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, making that first step, whether it's appointing the next manager or, or appointing a director of football, it's a tricky thing to do. And there are recruitment companies, but they, I don't know if they've ever come up with somebody. I don't, know, I don't remember a recruitment company finding Jurgen Klopp, for example. The, the Manchester United boardroom right now is like if you and I were trying to plan Milan Fashion Week. It's like, where do we look? What Not do we do? now. I mean, come on. Who do we talk to? I don't know. We can throw a lot of money at this person. That's a famous name. Okay, yeah. I mean, that, would, that would work. We'd have good parties, though. Well, they, they would be. And I'm sure Ed Woodward is partying hard. But yeah. uh, that's, that's not what football's all about. Because just to, from a Liverpool perspective, the transfer committee that Brendan Rodgers worked under became this massive stick to beat him with. The same transfer committee exists for Jurgen Klopp. Yeah. And has a hit after hit after hit after hit after hit in the last 18 months. And it's interesting that that system has worked. Klopp was like... You know, it's just that's just what it is. I knew, I knew when I walked in, this is what it would be, and this is what it is. Now he had experience from Dortmund, I suppose, and to Rogers, it was a far more alien thing. And perhaps Rogers went on more solo runs than Klopp has ever done in um, terms of buying. But like, so it seems like the committee, it seems like the committee had learned that you can buy a bunch of ten million players, and several of them will be crap. If you buy a hundred million player, yeah, hit rate's pretty good. Virgil van Dijk, it turns out, was worth every single penny. Yeah, and that is the, well, like, what if you use the exact same logic to what Manchester United have done? With Pogba? Yeah. And Pogba's a really good player. We, we, let's hope so. I think he is. I think that, like, I think Paul Pogba's a really good player. That's how far my opinion has changed in the last 24 hours. I'm starting to believe the Pogba hype. <laughs> or disbelieve the Pogba hype, I should say. Um, should we talk some GEA? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we will uh, because we've got this well, probably my favourite uh, survey of the year it's the uh, Taneo Sport and Sponsorship Index for 2018 uh, it's in the Irish Examiner this morning and uh, we've got the graphic of you know Ireland's favourite sport grading sports achievement team of the year all that sort of stuff and big news this year Gaelic Games has taken over as Ireland's favourite sport. Now, soccer uh, has been the lead in this survey, which is done every single year. A thousand people uh, represented with quotas imposed across gender, region, age and social class. So soccer for, has been Ireland's favourite sport for the last eight years, ever since this survey has started. Uh, but then over the last few years, there's just been a decrease in popularity from 26%, for example, in 2013 uh, to 19% this year. So Gaelic Games um, jumping up to the top. And it's interesting, actually, what the piece says. It says one major contributing factor has been Gaelic Games' popularity amongst females strengthening, mirroring the overall popularity jump from 17% to 21%. But in general, I guess, the national soccer malaise has represented itself in the popularity of the sport. The hurling boom has represented itself in the Gaelic Games uh, rise. Granted, uh, encapsulating them all under Gaelic Games, 
is a little bit different to saying how popular is Gaelic football at the moment because yeah. you'd suspect that that'd be on the same trajectory as soccer. Well, is Niall Morna part of your Gaelic game roundup story here? He's repeating comments that he made to us basically um, six months ago that you'd have to pay him to watch Gaelic football at the moment and that the game has uh, gone to pot and that even the Sigerson is no longer any good where... You know, that was one of the last few places where you would see man to man. It's now gone, uh, everybody behind the ball. Yeah, I fell out of love with Gaelic football, he says. Uh, I think he was speaking, kind of promoting Operation Transformation, I gather. Uh, how could you love football? You couldn't pay me to go and watch a game of football. And I think he used those exact words when he was on with us a few months ago. I went to four games this year, the All-Ireland Final and three Scotstown games. I couldn't watch it, and the Sigerson has become like that. He's actually stepped away from the DCU Sigerson team for the first time uh, in 18 years. It became 14 men behind the ball, where Sigerson was that one competition where it was man against man. If I was a young kid growing up in Ireland, there's only one sport I'd play, and that would be hurling, based on what I've seen over the past few years. He speaks about the structure as well. He says, uh, I was on a radio show a few years ago, I'm not sure was it with us or was it uh, with somebody else, and I even suggested the impact of counties actually combining for a championship. This is when it comes to structures. Make it a 12 or 14 team championship where any team could win it. A bit like the Super Bowl in America, and there would be no more dynasties. Uh, he talks about like uh, speaking to David Hickey in 2011. So the morning we played Tyrone, when we relegated them to Division 2, and we got to the league semi-final in 2011, we went for a walk. David Hickey's exact words were, I think this is going to become the greatest Gaelic football team of all time. I suppose if they do five in a row, he'll be right. <laughs> Great documentary on over Christmas. Have you heard about this one? No. Yeah, it's like the 1982 All-Ireland Football Final revisited minute by minute, second by second. Yeah, they should really talk a little bit more about that. Parsing out over exactly what happened, how it was that Kerry managed to talk themselves out of doing five in a row and becoming the greatest team of all time. Well, you know? What do you mean? I mean, well, Dublin have obviously supplanted them. What are you, talk- you mean the greatest team of all time were beaten by Offaly in the 1982 All-Ireland Final? I mean, the, it's, that's if, the if they had been the greatest team of all time, they would have won the five in a row. They wouldn't have panicked. They wouldn't have got in their own heads. Well, it, like once you are the greatest team of all time, that can sow a seed of doubt. I mean, I'm teeing you up for your next story here, on. Uh, what is my next story again? Um, We're talking about Mickey Whelan, are Mickey we? Mickey Whelan, yeah. So, uh, dubs ignore shit talk, says the back of the Irish Daily Star. We, uh, we've never done this before. Mickey Whelan says, if you keep thinking about it, it'll be noise in their brain. That's the point you were trying to make. Uh, he says, but they don't. It's just another championship. Simple as that. But there is more interesting stuff from him, really, on the inside. He says, at a 60s team that won the All-Ireland, we were the second team to beat Kerry in an All-Ireland championship in 84 years of trying. 84 years? Do you understand that? Two wins in 84 years. And that was in everybody's head, particularly in Kerry's heads. They're coming up saying these guys never beat us, but the roles have changed now. I think we're a bit in their heads. He also speaks about Pat Gilroy and saying how he's pretty gutted that he had to walk away from Dublin hurling, but that he expects him to come back in the future. And some guys with Dublin GEA uh, says that he's still quite a young man, which is true. Uh, and then just a, a couple of the other stories that have been doing the rounds, uh, this Galway story really, has kind of taken on uh, a life of its own. Owen Cormac and the Irish Examiner are doing good work in it over the last couple of days. Basically, if you've missed this, uh, the management committee of the Galway County Board uh, have been criticised for failing to complete an internal finance review midway through 2017. So this is new information this morning. So uh, we heard earlier in the week uh, Treasurer Mike Burke of Galway uh, talking about Galway GEA and their credit card and the use of it for payment of personal expenses. Now, this was first brought to his attention by two people in February 
2017. Uh, and Croke Park, uh, according to Pat Carney, uh, recommended an internal audit to be conducted. Uh, the board's auditors weren't able to carry out this mid-year review. So this question is, why wasn't the audit being able to carry out? Who was blocking funds? And we do understand that an investigation is underway. Uh, the, there, there was to be a mid-year review done. Uh, this is DHKN, the auditing company. We looked to get it done and we were told that there were no accounts. So you can't do a review if there is nothing ready. We were subject to get in and we were told there was nothing for us to review. Uh, like the, the idea then of the uh, information being left alone because information was not produced was referred to as scandalous then by Paul Bellew, a, a Pierce's candidate in Galway GEA. Like the overrun on expenses here is absolutely extraordinary. €45,000 in 2016, uh, and on top of that, payment of bonuses without proper authorisation. Now, the Treasurer had made some reference to being Christmas, but he's not going to be Santa or his elves, and we're going to get that number down to €10,000. Because I've got no idea what expenses should be for a county. No. But if Galway GEA are realistically saying we're going to get this number down to €10,000, two years ago they spent €45,000 on expenses. That, to me, sounds like a hell of a lot of money to be spending on personal expenses. So it'll be interesting to see what the uh, investigation actually throws up, if there'll actually be any punishment meted out or if there'll be somebody uh, singled out. You had Mick Foley on last night from the Sunday Times. Uh, uh, another uh, reference to the five in a row, wrote a brilliant book about how um, Offaly beat that Kerry team and denied them their um, place as the greatest team of all time. Did you write that book? Yeah. I, I need to read that book. Oh, sounds I've just kind of compartmentalised that bit that I actually don't remember in my entire life. So... Um, the book is astonishingly good, by the way, just as an aside. But you were talking to him last night about um, generally whether or not there should be full-time financial administrators in each of the counties to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen. And it's hard now. So maybe maybe that's a shared resource. Maybe some counties share that resource, and it's like a two-and-a-half-day week in Longford and two-and-a-half-day week in Leitrim, or it's a day a week in Leitrim, Longford, Mayo, whatever whatever the geographical spread. Like, But some full-time financial reporting that is hardwired into the computers in Croke Park where everybody's going Ooh, like you're a, a, if everybody was on Revolut and had to use the app you'd be like oh you seem to be spending quite a lot of money on something here beep 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 not that hard these days no and you talk about the vast sums of money that are now doing the rounds uh, in GA and this story that we also mentioned at Mick last night of uh, Wexford County Board reported in the examiner yesterday morning having reported a surplus of €481,000 I think uh, I, I it's, it's in that ballpark of, for 2018 this is the sort of funds we're talking about here and amateurs are looking after this money yeah like, and it's, it's, a, lot it's it a, a lot to expect it is a lot to expect, expect. Um, one more story from GA World? Yeah, just one last thing. Tipperary County Board looking to form a committee to look into possibly amending the parish rule. So this is Moyne Temple Tuhi. They've made a successful motion in view of the difficulties being experienced by small rural clubs in fielding underage teams. They propose that the Tipperary County Board establish a committee to examine if the parish rule, as currently constituted, is fit for purpose. Good question. It isn't fit for purpose. And uh, Tim Floyd, oh sorry, John Devan, the county uh, chairman, said it's about having the numbers to play. And then Tim Floyd said, in recent times, as we become a great modern European state, we have shed many of our traditions and cultures. The identity of the parish is becoming less relevant in parts of our and when the question of borders and boundaries arises, a club is looked on as being small-minded and parochial. Uh, stick to beat the GA with. Uh, these are just sticks to beat the GA parish rule with, and we should be proud to preserve the ethos. So let's stay parochial and small. What was the phrase? Uh, small-minded and parochial. I, I, I quite fancy our small-minded parochial rule here. Nothing wrong with having a small mind, Jer. <laughs> let's move on. Um, Kevin Cabal was on last night, obviously reacting to the news that Josie Mourinho had been sacked by Manchester United. Going to talk with Dan McDonald about this immediately afterwards. Stay tuned. Kev, you've been crunching the numbers today. 
Yeah, do, do, there's a story going around. I, sorry, I'm just, I've just been distracted by... I'm just shocked to see uh, Kenny Cunningham on TV tonight. That's the only thing. Uh, Kenny Cunningham's turned... <laughs> Wait, what does that shock you? He's back in the good graces yeah, of Montrose. he's back on... I'm not too sure who's who, him or, um, or Richie Sadler, actually. But <laughs> they really anyway, should have talked about yeah. pairing them, shouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah we, we talked about everything, but the, the, the reports today of uh, Jose Mourinho leaving... He's let, obviously, we, we know the story. He stayed in the Lowry over the last few years. He didn't want to rent a place. He didn't want to buy a place in Manchester. So he's lived in a suite in the Lowry for the last few years apparently as he checks out today the final time a bit Alan Partridge stuff but £537,000 was the eventual bill Jesus. As- I'm leaving you yeah. <laughs> I can you imagine That's how many what? days did he say it for nearly uh, 900 yeah eight, what's that eight, like nine, 600 five. quid a day 895 day stay yeah, six hundred quid a day. That's is that, is that, you've, done, you've done the crunch off the top of my head. Jesus. Yeah, you just worked that one out the top of your head. Yeah, five hundred thirty-seven thousand. That's unbelievable. According to to Mike Keegan in the Daily Mail, one resident who did not wish to be named told Sportsmail that Mourinho had a final meal at lunchtime in the bar of the hotel when he returned from Carrington. Do you know what though? I, I, and, 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 and part of that as well actually does it does annoy you, doesn't it? I mean, this is something else though, but it does annoy you. I mean, that just goes to show the excesses of, of football nowadays, isn't it? Largesse. It, it, but it, it's ridiculous. I mean, we, we talk about grassroots football through in every country of the world, and, and, and there is a, even over in England there's a big thing, grassroots football doesn't get enough filtered back down through to it. And that is a, that, that's embarrassing. Yeah, Kev, um, not, not a big fan of the half a million on the hotel. Dan, how are you? Hey, good, Morning, very good, lads, very good. Yeah, it is, a, it is obscene. I mean, I did hear that the, the full the full chat last night and um yeah I, I i had this image of like you know Mourinho checking out and did you take anything from the minibar sir but obviously it was a more week-to-week arrangement he had in that regard you know but uh yeah it is sort of obscene but i mean does it surprise you no you know not, it's, not it's, at um, all no um and we were just chatting off air and you wondered like you know was there any was any deal cut over a period of time for a bit of publicity but i i, I don't know are, I mean, are the larry official hotel partners at some level i mean i don't know i mean you would well, i know the figures obviously come out so i'm guessing or did somebody just go he stayed there this was the amount of nights this is the price the of the job suites. multiply it you know. yeah potentially potentially so, so um I mean, when you when you look at that, even that angle alone, and again, you know, you talked; it was discussed at length last night. But even even that act of not committing in whatever way to like moving to the area sort of gives you this whole. It, it's sort of in in keeping with the whole story of his time there that he never really fit in. He never quite settled. He was never quite the feet were never under the table there in terms of he was always in this sort of uh, turbulent state. Even as much as as much as they had it a reasonable season they won the Europa League he still really was never it was never that sort of sense of calm no. around, around his, his time there at all no from the first press conference like from, from that from that period on it was always the clock was ticking to mm. see when this was going to finish and uh, I mean it's a pity that his managerial career has ended like this because the stuff that he did with that Porto team granted it was a team festooned with world class players um, was amazing like the notion that a Portuguese team could win the Europa League and the Champions League as it is now, it's a it's complete insanity. There's oh, no yeah. way Benfica are ever doing that. There's no way that Porto are ever doing that again. Like that's not happening again. Yeah, and also as well, what's striking is that when you when you speak to like you know Damien Duff has spoken about it, but you listen to interviews with the the other players of his first Chelsea team, like how much they loved him and 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 how he had that sort of. 
this magnetic and genuine charisma as opposed to this sort of forced cabaret yeah. version now. Yeah. Which is, which, uh, and I know there was conflict along the way. I mean, what he did at Entrepreneur was amazing too, as mm. well. I mean, really in terms of sort of succeeding. And it's, it's, it's that sort of con, conf, so state of conflict that he found at Madrid that I don't think he's ever really left, you know. And, and he probably just hasn't evolved or, or whatever it might be, or it doesn't work with players anymore. You can, you can, look, you can look at it from various different ways. It appears as if he's evolved the wrong way. He's just like getting, he, yeah. he, he's definitely a different manager from that Chelsea team. Mm-hmm. I think from the first, from the iteration of Chelsea the first time when he was the self-proclaimed special one, like that charisma has disappeared. That has evolved into a constant war footing state. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, it's yeah, he's just someone who, who I mean, I, I, it sounds cruel, but I, I, he's not a hugely sympathetic figure, though, at the same time no, as well. No, you know, no, he's, no, not, no. he's not someone, I, I don't find that there's a sadness about this. You know, you, you, can, you can try and sit back and find that, but it doesn't really, I think doesn't, doesn't affect me in that way. There's definitely sadness in the elements. Well, yeah, but it's a sort of a tra- sort of tragicomic element yeah. to the whole thing. But rather than him being a figure of sympathy himself, you know, it's like he's just this increasingly em- embittered figure raging at the world I think that there was definitely a role for Mourinho for the the second part of his career to be something brilliant and interesting and we've not had that we've just had a waste of all our times Mm. that's what I'm like but what's he do now I mean I know you're saying the end of his managerial career but there's there's definitely there's more gigs to come for him you know like he, he did his ambassadorial gig in Russia in the summer. He's still doing, you know, yeah, earning yeah, a few yeah. bob for Russia today. Like, yeah. is he going to go on this international manager's circuit of the world and Would he, could he pitch be, up in Qatar and all these places yes. like over a period of time? Well, there's an assumption that Zidane can't get the Man United gig now because he's going to do the Qatar, Qatar uh, World Cup gig. Yeah. But like, he'd have plenty of time to cycle through this Man United gig for two years and then. Head I can over. see Jose going down that road or like managing in Russia for a period of time or whatever it might be. You know, yeah. he might like. He, I mean, you are right about Madrid. And I, I, like he still has the, for all that you can be critical of him, he still has that power that he's going to get really, really good offers. You can imagine. Um, It'll be interesting, It'll but, be, uh, but are they going to be top sort of six Premier League offers? I'm not. I'm not so sure. It's got to be a strange. Like the reason why Madrid kind of comes to mind is just the relationship with Perez, and that's the mm. strange kink in that sort of uh, environment that we have. One last point, right? So say you're, um, say you're a billionaire looking at the Premier League teams, and you're like looking at Newcastle, or you're yeah, you're, you're trying to take over a team. You're Wolves, so, yeah. where, where actually you could play the football that Mourinho plays because you're bringing the Mourinho brand and saying, okay, look, we're not. Man United, we don't have to have 70% possession. We don't have the expectation that we're going to win games 3-0 at home. Like, if you were to go, is it possible that that football can work for a smaller club? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see that argument. I, I, is it enough to, like, bring that club from being, you know, ninth or 10th to that sort of... Champions League fringe. Champions League fringe. Uh, now you'd have to spend like an outrageous amount of money, which I think is a given in terms of the scenario that you're talking yeah. about. But I mean, I'm not even so sure. You I know, don't know I mean, everything is cyclical. You know, there, there is like there is there is there is now this this feeling now that every team needs to be like you know Man City, Liverpool, like you know high press and really entertaining to watch and stuff. And yeah. that's been demanded of the teams around them. I don't think. And, and again, there will be a club in crisis who's going badly and is, is going through a particularly bad patch and there will be a discussion, well, no, they need someone who'll come in like Mourinho, who can organise them. And, you know, so, but I don't know if the, the clubs at the right end at the Premier League at the moment want 
That, his destiny, moment, his destiny is to be a high price, better dressed Big Sam, uh, uh, saving teams I mean, from relegation. S- something like that. That'd I mean, his teams weren't always boring, <laughs> no. you know. But they, well, you know, but they, I, but it would take a sort of. You, you do think that for him to get to that, even to that stage that you're talking about, like for the special one to pitch up in Newcastle or to pitch up in whoever it is, you yeah. know, the, the new Man City project and be the face of it I think there's a road to travel before he gets there there probably is one very good job somewhere else mm. before that but then what happens now I, I, I guess that there could be a sadness in what comes next for him. Uh, you've got a helpful cut out and keep list of the players that Man United need to um, give uh, to yeah yeah well I mean these eight players you've given us eight players so I'll, I'll list them off uh, you list no, them yeah cause no I, particular order Matic Jones Rojo, Young, Herrera Fellaini, Sanchez and Lukaku yeah not yeah. Pogba which would be the the natural one you would have thought in some ways, but I'd still firmly believe that he should be he should be kept and made a central part of what comes let's next. See, because let's he see hasn't, what we have. Yeah. He hasn't played under someone else yeah. in this in this uh, in this second incarnation as a Manchester United player, and it's only six months since he was a dominant player in a World Cup. And even we see behind the scenes stuff, which is very different to the Instagram sort of fool. You know that 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 we're, we're sort of. We, that has definitely damaged him, damaged his reputation in a serious way in the last couple of months, you know. And, and why, uh, like, why is that? What, what's in particular uh, well, as opposed to that? I, I don't know. I, I think just uh, I, I think so. I know this is the way that the footballers are now, and I'm not. I hate. I, I, there, there, there is this sort of po-faced element sometimes of a, or look at them now on their social media or stuff like that. But the club's going through a particularly bad patch, and he's not playing. He hasn't been playing in the team at all, and there has to be an element of pride about like how you present yourself and there's the element of well I need to knuckle down at this point and the stuff at the weekend the sort of mucking about with Jesse Lingard about his birthday like he's the best player at the club or, or the highest profile player at the club probably the best player at the club and he's not playing at the moment like this is a time to be away from the limelight to not be drawing attention to yourself and I know the brand is all powerful I know to an extent that's a big part of why Manchester United actually signed him so there's a sort of certain hypocrisy of chipping away on even the sponsored posts or whatever it might be when he is such a massive brand and, and, and a massive sort of asset to them and it's probably one of the main reasons for keeping him although I mean I hear Andy Mitten speaking that he could be gone too almost regardless of this but I think you still have to give him a chance and I think if, if a new manager is going to come in you know, in the summer really in terms of the, the, the real manager who makes the decisions yeah. and they're going to sit down and they're, go, they're going to say well we need these five, six, seven elite players or whatever it might be or is it less is it fewer players the challenge yeah you have one there like you have one there who's, who is in that bracket that if he was somewhere else he'd be on your list to, yeah. get, to get him so once you have him there I think you, you, you keep him and you give him a chance I mean it's an expensive business to get rid of him anyway although I assume he still will have takers which is a of itself shows he still has a value. Whereas it's going to be harder than some of the other players that I mentioned, the likes of Alexis Sanchez, who's on this deal between 350 grand to 500 grand if you, I think, kick in all the image rights and appearances and stuff like that. And he looks a bit of a beaten docket. Like, how do you get rid of someone like that? You send him on loan and hope that he has a good six months? That's... That's what I would think, you know. Do you, do, Somewhere do you in the Bundesliga? Like, well, he, do, he'd love to go to Paris. That's the reports coming out from his... Now, I don't know where he, where he fits in even there at the moment. But there is... You know, you, you would think someone would take a, take a pop at him. He's going to be difficult to move. I would argue Lukaku, going forward, longer term, is he like your number nine as a, a really top team 
you know, a title-winning team. He's probably just not a good, around, good enough all-round player for yeah. that. And that's a difficult one because he's, he's on a good deal. He's got a certain status. And it's not just easy to just shift these lads out. You know, it, it's not just a simple case of you click your fingers and it's a very straightforward deal. There's much as there'll be a certain level of interest in them. Yeah. They're, they're the slightly tougher decisions. And then there's the older lads who you mentioned who, you know, Matage is looking a bit laboured these days and the likes of Rowe and, and people like that they need to move and, and make room in the squad for, for better players yeah like uh, so I, I mean you just keep Ashley Young until as a squad player though yeah well I think I mean Young is just it, there's a natural evolution that's going to come anyway he's 33 yeah you know, so he's, he's going to go Fellaini has his uh, he's always a sort of a popular whipping boy sort of figure but again, it's, it depends. We're assuming that we're assuming that the next manager is going to have a style and that's going to be a little bit more easy on the eye and in keeping with. And so, if Antonio Conte comes in, you can see most of these players staying, except maybe so Sanchez probably is, is done. But everybody else will fit into an Antonio Conte hard-working team with a. Antonio Conte would be a disastrous appointment, no? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like I, I can see why you would do it as a short-term fix, but that's what he is. The like, so say you talk about Paul Pogba and the current situation with Jose Mourinho. We don't know what exactly Paul Pogba's motivation is. Has he stopped sort of giving his all for Manchester United because of his relationship with Jose Mourinho? Maybe the last player I can think of who did something like that was Eden Hazard under Antonio yeah, Conte. Yeah. So do Manchester United really want to make that same mistake? Like, and I know it's kind of like putting your hands up and saying, "Well, we're didn't they work together at Juve? Did they work together at Juve?" Conte and Pogba would have been, yeah. He would have been his last Juventus manager, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, like, th- that is obviously the big counterpoint, to be fair. So, I just think it's too similar a sort of dressing room. Uh, I don't want to use the word dictatorship, but Conte and Mourinho both like to own a dressing room. And maybe Manchester United <laughs> need to accept that player power is going to be the biggest thorn on their side unless they accept it. Mm. I don't know. Well, I don't know. It's, it does seem like it's going to be Pochettino, though, right? I mean, I know that there's that. I know you've been going through the headlines, and Spurs will fight to keep him and so on. But Spurs are in a position where, I mean, they they've given a certain amount of support over a period of time, but not enough to fend off the the attraction of this gig. And I think Pochettino has a case for going. And really, okay, maybe they can throw a, they can suddenly throw a shed load of cash at Pochettino to say, well, actually, you know, new stadium is coming. Um, yeah. eventually and yeah. you know here's you know we'll give you what you want but I mean Pochettino is a fit particularly you know his reputation of even working with younger players and, and how he's developed players during his time at, at, at all the jobs that he's done yeah. I mean, he does tick so many of the boxes and you would think this all powerful club still making all you know still has this attractive commercial wing which is running along effectively enough in its own way um, they've got the power surely to go and get him you know, and, and in that case so uh, you'd imagine he'd be more, be more progressive in terms of how he would uh, regenerate the dressing room there's no sense yet that I have that he has been the transfer mastermind at anywhere he's been in England so uh, like it seems like somebody else was buying and scouting he's the got players with at Southampton yeah. and obviously they just bought nobody at Spurs mm. this summer so you also need somebody or a, a system in place <clears throat> that is buying players that suit the style of play and a manager who'll play that style of play that suits the players yeah. that you're buying. At the moment, they have nothing. 
They yeah, well, just, this is the point uh, Andy, Andy made last night about this agent, wasn't it, who went to Manchester United and Man City in the same visit, effectively. And, you know, City were sitting down planning 12 to 18 months ahead, you know, 24 months ahead almost in terms of signing players for a vision. And even, like, you've seen, like, Gavin Bazzuna from Shamrock Rovers here going to City and, you know, it sounds like it's all very impressive in terms of the vision. It's always part of it, this plan. Whereas... Yeah, so the Manchester United are almost freestyling this, a bit, you know, yeah. um, which is again like, and the the blame game there. Then it runs deeper than one manager at one point, and and it even goes all the way back to Ferguson almost, you know, and and the sort of I think his control was such that once he left, uh, everything needed to be. And so the point about that, so Pochettino comes in and improves everybody who's already there, but maybe he's not a brilliant transfer mind, I'm, like. Maybe he is, right? Who knows? He's probably the type of manager who's going to be open to a structure because he has, he's used to working in tandem with someone. A fair point. S- someone else, you know? Who's putting that structure in place? It's the guys who have just bought this hodgepodge of random players who are like, oh, that guy's good, that guy's good, that guy's yeah, good. That's true. Oh, we can afford him. He's available for free. Let's pay him half a million a year or a week. What could possibly go wrong? I, like, I reckon Gary Neville would give it a bash, wouldn't he? You think uh, he's angling away at that the, for a while? Do you think? The eventually just give the class 92 the keys of the place. Yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, it takes them off the media. It would be circus. pretty easy, wouldn't it? Yeah, that, that removes like a very significant tranche of like... You just perfect. put them... So, you can, so then the Glazers can come to matches and sit behind them, Operation Human Shield. Yeah, they can have their hotel and everything nearby as well. And, yeah. and you know, it goes from there. I mean... Solves a lot of problems in one, I, one fell swoop. I think there's a very good chance that some part of that happens. That Solskjaer is like a little bit of a dip in, in you know, can we see if this, having somebody like this act as our human shield for a week or two or for five weeks yeah. or three months? I'd say within like 10 years, that's very plausible. Is it, is it plausible within 18 months? Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that, I think there's no doubt that's what they're angling towards longer term, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think as well that there was a, a good point made uh, this morning that uh, if you make good football decisions, you're still going to make loads of money. Getting the football decisions bad, or getting them wrong and making bad football decisions over a period of time will eventually diminish your ability to make money. So you need to get this right. Mm. Oh, that's it. I mean, that was the team the... can't continue to be crap. Yeah, even for all like, the Mourinho uh, debate over when he was going to go, it was just starting to chip away at things. And, you know, you saw yesterday them investors responding yeah, to, to, you know, and that's share prices up. They are, they are the factors that really drove the decision in the end, as much as anything. Uh, the MLS official uh, website's blog has been um, Jose Mourinho's out at Man United. Should MLS clubs make a move? Oh, I love this, Jose Mourinho title title for the MLS that's the, from blog. the official MLS blog. Yeah, is yeah, yeah. MLSsoccer.com. I'd say that'd be <clears throat> Mourinho in around eight to ten years. You I mean, know? maybe, maybe yeah, like, Galaxy is perfect. It's going to be linked with the Ireland manager's job at some stage in 10, <laughs> you know, in, in 10, 15 years' time. We're going to be, we'll, we'll have gone to whatever end of the cycle we get to. We, we decide what we need is another trap, you know, another glamour figure. So that's coming. Actually, or doesn't Joseph Mourinho hate which, uh, the United States of America? Like, all he did was complain over there before. No, yeah, 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 LA is different. And, like, that was like. Uh, Michigan or somewhere was that? No, but he was in LA in the summer, though, wasn't it? Oh, I think, sorry, I, I it was think was he was in LA. Before. Well, LA Galaxy are out. New York, maybe. 
you know, one of the New York teams, maybe. But I think get cold in the winter. Yeah. Or we, we like you talk about uh, Manchester United reunions. Go to that new Miami team that David Beckham is so steeped in. Yeah. Take the class of '92 over there and uh, get the, get happens. Miami going. We well, get Robbie Keane over there to manage in the MLS as well, and he could like give the whole how many MLS cups have you won? You know, three <laughs> more than the rest of you put together. That that could be his. That could be his angle. You know, that, that could come in time. Uh, your moments of the year, Dan. You got to see Kylian Mbappe uh, live and in person against Argentina at the World Cup. Yeah, moments of the year. Yeah, because. Uh, I sort of leaned towards ones I was lucky enough to be there for oh, and, uh, yeah. and you know the World Cup was a great experience and it wasn't any one moment in the France-Argentina game in Kazan it was just an amazing game to be at but it was just this sense that you're watching a player go from a level to the next level in terms of his uh, Reputation. Now, funnily enough, I mean, since the World Cup, I mean, he's still playing with PSG, and there's that sense he's not quite in your radar all the time, you know. But just there was there was a couple of moments in the early stage of that game where he won the penalty with a sort of amazing burst of mm. speed and power, and you're thinking, yeah, like you know, you're looking at his age, and you're thinking this is sort of mildly terrifying, sort of how good he was at that stage. And okay, the the legacy of that, and even that performance in that game is enhanced by the fact that they went on to win the tournament. Yeah. But when I think of the France World Cup win, I find myself thinking less of the final and more of that match yeah. for, you know, for whatever reason. And even like, the semi-final against Belgium was actually maybe the highest standard game in some ways um, of the lot. But that Argentina game was thrilling. But just watching him sort of come to the fore and that was, uh, that was a moment. Yeah, Luka Modric wins the golden ball. In retrospect, will we come to think... Ooh, maybe Kylian Mbappe should actually have got it. Considering he got young player of the year, it was a nice little cop out. It was, it was all sorted. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, I, I, no, I, I, I see the point. I, I see the point. I think probably the like, Croatian achievement was such. Maybe sometimes you lean, you find yourself. I find myself maybe leaning towards that semi underdog story. And like Modric was making this team tick. That was that had its limitations, but actually played its way through the tournament in a way that it almost improved as it went along. When you consider they, they could have gone out to Denmark on penalties or whatever, you know, and that could, would be the end of the story very yeah. quickly. Um, as much as he'd been good against Argentina prior to that and stuff. Yeah. Um, just, I think, you know, that, that Croatian team, the semi-final in England, which is another sort of suggestion I put onto the list, you know, that, that, that Croatian story overall, that, that Croatian team. I, I think Modric probably still, I, if I was voting, I, I would have gone for that, but I... I can definitely see a strong argument the other way. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe he got down to become the greatest player of all time after Leo Messi. I don't know. And you were like, oh, that was our chance. I don't know. Out of the teams that made the semi-finals in the World Cup, is there any one player who's shooting the lights out at the moment? Because you mentioned Mbappe there, who potentially mm. hasn't done it. To the level that we kind of... We were really excited for the season for Mbappe because of the World Cup he had. Like Pogba... They refer to the World Cup quite a bit. Lukaku's been speaking about how he's had to change his body shape post mm, the World Cup. has been injured. Brian's been injured. Harry Kane hasn't exactly hit last season's Hazard. standards just yet. Ian Hazard? Uh, Hazard is, is a very good exception. Uh, Hazard is yeah. probably the best of, of the last four. Yeah. What about Harry Maguire? Not so much. Not so much. Yeah, no, that's actually it is a valid point. And even like some of the Croatian lads um, obviously play for Inter and stuff like that. You know, They went out of the Champions League last week and... Um, yeah, no, it's, it is a valid argument. Uh, Ireland under 17 is next on your list? Yeah, like, so it's not, not a, they're not all happy moments, but it was sort of a surreal moment, the penalty shootout in Chesterfield in May. And again, like, you know, I was over at that game, it was the game against Holland, and 
it was sort of a piece, just a light piece almost to see how the kids were getting on rather than necessarily covering the tournament in a, in a really strong way. It was, let's see how these boys are getting on yeah. as more of a broader piece. And then it ends up being this surreal event that actually there was only like a couple of hundred people in the stadium but then you have this sense that everyone at home because it was televised live on RTE to be fair yeah. suddenly bought into this story and this injustice of Jimmy Corcoran this, so you know, you're naturally the penalty shootout evolves you're getting into it Ireland are on the way out and then he makes this save at the last minute. I remember one of his coaches from Cherry Orchard, I think, went down the line. So with the press box, I was to the left of the stadium and there was nearly no one, no one in that section of the stand apart from one of the coaches, who I think is the dad of one of the other players, screaming at Corcoran just to, to, to be big and to, you know, he'd, he hadn't, he'd missed a couple of the previous penalties. And it was like this Hollywood moment where for the last penalty, he eventually steps up and makes the save. And I have to be honest, I was looking down making notes and it was a bit of a kerfuffle. Then we know what was going on. And then you look up and you see like the red card being produced. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it just went from one extreme to the other. And I saw the picture up a second ago of like Martin O'Neill storming onto the pitch. And yeah. uh, all of a sudden, it's like this is this this is this massive story here. And like this is suddenly hugely important. And it was hugely important. It was it was as much as the application of the letter of the law was such. Uh, I don't think that referee refed again in the competition. And uh, and it wasn't enforced at the World Cup, actually. You mentioned Denmark-Croatia. You're watching the shootout then and lads sailing off the line, you know, almost at the penalty spot by the time the penalty's taken. Yeah. And clearly, this was like a test case game where it's like, let's strictly enforce the letter of the law, but that consistency wasn't applied. And I mean, the young lads were like in this horrendous situation um, and there was those tears that you show afterwards of the lads on the pitch in tears. But also, this around like 20 minutes after the final whistle, they were also milling around on their phones. Suddenly, the other thing as well, because it is today's generation or whatever, yeah. that they took their phones out and suddenly realised that everyone at home had been watching this game on television. And there was this buzz as well. You know, so there was this anger, but there was also a sense of pride as well that they'd, you know, they'd involved themselves in, in a national story. So that was uh, something to remember. We've got Rojo against Nigeria. Yeah, I actually wasn't at the I wasn't at the this game, but this was one of the sort of things I remember from Russia because I think I was about to travel to go from like one train station to another, one city to another, and I was in one of these sort of dingy waiting rooms with uh but it was absolutely jam-packed full of people, full of South Americans. For all that we love the uh, you know the best fans in the world line as an Irish thing, actually at the World Cups, the South Americans are miles above everyone else. And they were, um, I think Ireland would have travelled in volume if they qualified, but the South Americans really travelled to Russia in a way that European countries didn't. And I was just, like you know, obviously Argentina probably bring more than anyone else. They were like seconds from dipping out of the competition and they get that like last minute goal and this entire train station and even like I thought Argentina weren't the popular country in South America deemed to be a bit aloof or whatever but it, like there was Colombians and other characters high-fiving and getting really into it and you're like this is a World Cup like that's yeah. actually what the World Cup is about it's about everyone travelling around yeah. being in the one place that's what a major tournament is about yeah. I know we have this 12 country one in 2020 you're going to miss that you know and anyone who's been to a major tournament knows that it's almost the days the off days for your team where you're mingling with all these fans of other countries you know that's as good as anything but that was that was that was a good moment does it change things that it really resulted in like ultimate elimination i guess the uh, i obviously they got out of the group stages which I, I, obviously proves your point that it was worth something but does the france thing sort of deflated a little bit well i don't know because they ended up being part of a great game 
yeah. uh, you know, against France when they were the leaving. The game was amazing as well. They were leaving in absolute shame, you know, when, if they went out. I mean, and, and there, I mean, the whole thing was still a mess, right? Because you, you hear afterwards all the behind-the-scenes stuff and, uh, you know, the, the players had turned against management and so on. But it was just that, like, Argentina had so many fans there. And it's like, oh, no, they can't go out now. Because if they go out... Yeah. That's removing a whole... So all of a sudden then, they, they, they won that game and then actually travelled on. To, I think I was going to Kazan at the time and all of a sudden this Argentinian sort of invasion happens and they sort of rocked in. And like that, that France-Argentina game, the 4-3, like probably 95% of the stadium were Argent, Argentina fans. Yeah. You know? So you want them to stay in the competition as long as possible. Uh, the, the World Cups are weird in that as the tournament progresses, the whole experience becomes much smaller. And yeah, it, it goes back to normal. Like the Moscow in the last ten days was back to itself to a point because pretty much the South American teams all got all got knocked out. Yeah, and uh, like the same England Colombia in Moscow, the stadium was like again ninety percent, ninety five percent Colombian. Yeah, and uh, there was that sense of anticlimax when those teams started to, to drift away. We have. Um the order was um, Stephen Kennedy's final, but also you've got Russia beating Spain down on your list as well. So we talk about that because we're in the middle of our world. Yeah, here, yeah. So. Well, Russia Spain was a surreal uh, experience because the atmosphere in the stadium actually wasn't that that good at all. Now, you know, Russia obviously for its own reasons had shipped a lot of the hooligans out of town, you know, and shipped maybe a lot of the more hardcore football fans who had a bit of a reputation they is that were true sort of, yeah, that they, yeah they, they definitely uh, it's they, mad really isn't they it weren't they that picked up a group of people and drove them out of town or did they ship them out of town or were they not I mean you, you did hear the shipping out of town maybe that's dramatic they certainly weren't in the stadiums anyway yeah. they weren't getting into the matches and so the Russia-Spain game the Luzhniki was very much it was like the, the last night at the proms football attendance you know like there was Mexican waves inside 10-15 minutes I mean yeah. Spain scored early and there was this really real, yeah, it was a nice family atmosphere, I guess. But it, it, when you when you watch like the Russian team say in the Champions League, uh, that atmosphere wasn't really. It was a different kind. They were almost cheering at the wrong times and stuff like that. They definitely weren't like there was a lot of people who weren't regular football watchers there. Yeah. But yet, sort of against all the odds, Russia survive. You know, amazing sort of durability to yeah. stay in the game. They get through, and you can have a whole separate debate about that. But they amazingly get through, and okay, the atmosphere in the stadium was was still it was incredibly noisy when the, when they win the shootout and the atmosphere goes. But it was more so in Moscow later that evening, and you can talk about you know the World Cup is inextricably linked with Russia, right? And Russia, and and where Russia is, and what Russia's like on a day to day basis versus what Russia's like during this this sort of five six week tourist event you know to showcase the best of Russia but there was actually these like spontaneous scenes of celebration and sort of uh, traffic and like Italian you know, 90 yeah sort of you know people just jumping out of cars and, and yeah. you know get, getting caught in a traffic jam getting back in and yeah that sort of semi Italian 90 vibe which I don't think is a common event in terms of this outpouring on the streets uh, of actually like positive yeah. emotions so that was a sort of a, a night you know, in a game that you do remember being at pretty clearly because of the mood. And I mean, I, I really enjoyed Russia while knowing what Russia is as well. And you read about Russia subsequently and you know that really it hasn't changed dramatically in any way. But at the same time, you did actually meet like plenty of great locals there who were just living a very normal day to day life who really enjoyed this experience. And for them, 
like the World Cup meant something. They didn't you know? ship out the bad people and ship in actors or anything. No, there was no actors shipped in. No, like I mean, and actually, like across the tournament, you had some great conversations, which was sort of very regular people who were chatting away very casually about politics and how the West sees us and all this. Um, but then, you know. Uh, I, I, you come away from it and you get really positive about it and then you think actually mm, well it's still you know sort of deeply flawed place in many yeah. ways but that was that was a that was a day that genuinely did sort of captivate people and uh, you could sense the mood of the, the country almost being lifted for 24 hours anyway Stephen Kenny's um, final Kenny's final is after the FA Cup final yeah it's just I mean it's, it's almost sometimes these moments grow significance in hindsight yeah but uh, you know Stephen Kenny storming onto the pitch after Dundalk won and, and, and beat Cork in the FA Cup final which was what the sort of first couple of days in November and this is tied in with the fact that 22 days later he was back there to be unveiled as effectively as we know, Ireland's next manager. That's yeah. that, that's really what is unveiling is about. That's the only reason he left. And like Kenny, I mean, I, I do firmly believe that. Like, and I, I really support like Kenny's appointment. And I think you know he would have been fine to have a crack at it now. But I, I think if they hadn't won that game, I don't think he would have got the job now. Right. I, Even I think, after all the stuff, I, I don't. I don't think so. No, I think it just it was. It was timing as everything. And um, like I've sort of touched on this in a sort of an end of year piece. Like, Dundalk lose that game. Like, I remember even the following day after Dundalk win the double. I remember Eamon Sweeney did a piece in our paper about now is the time for Kenny. And it sort of was juxtaposed against like this negativity and this drabness around the Irish team and, and, and this, you know, how it was perceived as very stale. And then you have like Stephen Kenny on one hand, this, this bright young thing, even though he's been managing for 20 years, his team who played good football, sense of. I mean, look, look at the joy that they're bringing you know, to, to, to their level. You know, why, why not give this man a chance? And I think if, there's, if their year had ended differently, if they'd lost that final in a flat sense, you know, he wouldn't have been marching out in the pitch. He wouldn't have been on the back pages the following day. He wouldn't have been there at the right time, at just the right place at the right time for this movement. And there's no doubt that what's happened, like the FAI have been influenced by public opinion. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that that's been a factor in the decision-making process. They might have got to the right decision in the end by by bowing to that but I really do believe that they were reacting to the, the sort of the mood music that was there and I think if Dundalk don't win that game I'm not sure if that sets off the same chain of events that, that leads him to getting that job because they were expected to win the game because they're a better team yeah I mean they sh- because he's a better manager and it's like a yeah they were favourites to win the game and yeah. I mean and maybe people would disagree with that point but I just think that uh, it was the first couple of weeks in November the O'Neill thing was bombing, you know, things were going pretty badly. There was a shortage of like outstanding candidates out there beyond Mick and Kenny just forced himself into the picture. And I just think momentum and timing, like if it was 12 months ago, the Doc lost the FEI Cup final, they had lost the league to Cork, I don't think he would have been... That, no. Regardless of what he'd done in the Europa League in 2016, I don't think he would have been in that discussion. Whereas it was just this, at this moment in time, it just fell perfectly for him and uh, yeah I, I don't, I'm not sure if he knew that was a viable thing when he won the cup because I think there was a personal significance in him and finally winning the cup after losing the previous two at the Aviva but it just all fell the right way at the right time so it's one of these moments that in hindsight now you're thinking that was a very significant thing Last one is um, Gareth Bale's Champion League final Yeah well, it wasn't, no, I wasn't at that game but I was trying to think of right, games that you weren't at that I sort of, I was, where were you when that was scored? Yeah, moment? yeah, yeah. And these, uh, these Champions League finals 
tend to correspond with meaningless Ireland friendly trips I found so I can I can chart where I've been for Champions League finals through a litany of end of season tours and friendlies I Ireland Man United Chelsea penalty shootout in Portugal for like traps first training camp in the Algarve and so on New York for a couple of, I just you know can always trace them and we were in France at that time because we were playing France in that friendly oh yeah like two or three days later what was this called? and uh Lost 2-0, I think. Fakir uh, scored. Yeah, and uh, Sadidi was brilliant in the game. And Mbappe played for a while and stuff. Uh, I actually remember a few of the Irish players saying he was the best player they'd ever played against. It was almost you know, a sign of what was to come. Yeah. But I just remember this, like, this bar, city centre bar in Paris and the Champions League final, the power of this game. And I know, I know Karius made his mistakes and stuff, but all I remember is just this wow factor when Bale just produces this moment particularly when I saw a fella just coming out of the toilet just 30 seconds afterwards to a cheering pub I, I'm pretty sure I know who it was as well but I don't want to sort of uh, slander him and just coming out to this horror of realising he'd missed this amazing moment coming out the absolute you know anyone's nightmare watching the game in a bar you, you have to go to the toilet uh. and then you, like, you hear these cheers these cheers like something truly amazing has happened and they come out afterwards but like it wasn't really like for Bale it was an amazing moment given yeah. uh, given his uh, his uncertain status in Madrid over a period of time yeah and, and it's mad that I mean, they should have cashed in on the back of that and sold him because well the fakeness on the back of it was my favourite part oh the, the, Ronaldo. <laughs> the parade around the, uh, the the pitch and the, posing for a team photo and you know that moment where you've been smiling too much and your cheeks start to get sore because your smile is fake that, you could just yeah. see the pain in Gareth Bale and Ronaldo's face and then the quotes that came out afterwards about Gareth Bale saying he wasn't happy about not being picked from the start but I, think, yeah, I think Bale was genuinely smiling though I think he was happy yeah well maybe he was like oh, look what I've just done yeah. by the way Ronaldo, Ronaldo, not so much. It was the yeah. most underwhelmed I've ever seen a bunch of people after winning three <laughs> very major trophies in a row. Yeah, it wasn't in the script, but like it was an amazing, uh, you know, it was a pretty amazing strike. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, all right, some comments to wrap with today. Uh, Jose's a broken man, says Shane. It's the second time he's been screwed over by a dressing room in Madrid and now United. I mean, obviously got screwed over by the Chelsea dressing room the last time. I, I would say that Hazard's performances. Oh no, sorry, that was Conte. Uh, I would say like. Well, Hazard struggled. He'd, he'd, well, the the people who covered the the London beat at the time said that. I mean, obviously, you had the the the, the thing with sort of Doctor Eva and oh, yeah. you know he he was the architect of yeah, his own of his own, of his own demise there. I mean, that was something a fire that he that he lit himself. It's mad that that happened on the first day of that season and. He got sacked at the exact same time of the season as he did this time. Yeah. And then how did he manage to last all the way from August to December in <laughs> yeah. Chelsea? That was yeah. ridiculous patience from around. And they got all the South American players. The South American players yeah, lost. That was why. I, but I think the theory is that that was the one time, or that was a real moment, where the players just started to get completely disillusioned by the press stuff, by the press conference stuff. And they were actually listening to this going, what the hell is this? You know, and I think you, know, you can trace moments where like, he lost that sort of special one aura and yeah. I think I think that those couple of months at Chelsea really were something he possibly hasn't recovered from it must have been that summer like because unless so there was there was he, rumblings of discontent before that season kicked off of, they if I can remember correctly. the league win they didn't did they well, they, they won it reasonably well I mean, it's funny I remember Dion Fanning writing a piece very sort of uh very, it, it aged very well in terms of like Mourinho just ultimately thrives off conflict. At that summer, there was obviously some rumblings that it was like a form of boredom was going to set in, and yeah. he his his default setting is conflict, and he was going to find it somewhere. 
and I mean he found it pretty impressively over that period of time yeah um, ok so people are wondering uh, will Daniel Levy head Manchester United off at the pass I can imagine right now he's clarifying a few things with uh, Potch says at Bookham Dano on Twitter if you're Daniel Levy, do you throw all the money at him and say, OK, we have the stadium, we have the money, and we have the financial architecture, and we have a current team? Or are you the exact same as the Glazers, and you're like, cash in, move on? Get the next guy. Like, Get the next young manager. Get Eddie Howe, I think, or someone, as, as was mentioned, or, or someone of, of, that, of that ilk. And that's I, it. That's, the, that's their business model, and it's working really well for them. It has allowed them to build a new stadium. Well, they've stuck to it in terms of player wages to a point, but there's a tipping point, surely, you know, where... You know, you, you, okay, they haven't really been, you know, they sold Bale and Swan, but that's actually a fair bit in the rearview mirror at this stage. And they've held on to their their star players for a period of time. Um, but at what point do you become like Southampton in the sense that you just you, you, you take so many blows and then eventually it catches up with you over a period of time? You know, yeah. so if you make the commitment to keep Pochettino, it's, it's you also then have to replicate that with what you start paying your players and then you have to break that, that model that you've spoken about completely um, Paul Walsh thinks that Manchester United could end up in a relegation battle with the appointment of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer I wouldn't say so I mean his time at Cardiff wasn't exactly stellar it, was there anything to recommend it in retrospect it looked like he was overwhelmed overmatched no, no. well there is this argument sometimes with managers and you've even had this discussion about Roy Keane and stuff that uh, these these elite players. I mean, he spent pretty much the bulk of his career at United. That would they just be more effective if they went in at at a level I mean, they were used to, yeah. rather than? But like, I mean, Solskjaer in fairness, like he's got you know he's 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 learned his trade in Norway at at a sort of a unglamorous level, albeit you know a big deal in his own country. You know, yeah. so he's managed he's managed with players that would be way below what he was. Um, but yeah, his Cardiff spell was pretty. I think there was some money spent on pretty average players and. It didn't go especially well, but this argument is someone who's steeped in the fabric of the club, you know. I mean, Gareth Southgate, right, his reputation was, it's very different, it's, it's yeah. a national thing, yeah. but um, he, he, he knew, he got himself into the England setup, and all of a sudden, you forget now that Gareth Southgate, well, I mean, not that you forget, but, you know, I mean, his, his stay in Middlesbrough doesn't seem as important now. No, um, he got them promoted, didn't he? And then brought uh, them down. Is that what happened? Oh, I mean, uh, to be honest, I, so it was kind of like a Shearer situation, wasn't it? Where they were having a poor season and Southgate got inserted. Yeah, I'm not sure if he got them promoted, but I, I mean, it's, it, you, it doesn't trip off <laughs> doesn't trip off the tongue as uh, as easily as it should. Jim, yeah, you know? and, and but I guess maybe that's that's how um, short sighted the memory is of football is that ultimately like can you do a job now and maybe those experiences actually help you to get to a point where you're better Cardiff, like, if he starts reasonably well the whole Cardiff thing I mean they've given you know gigs responsibility to get to the edge of the season with, with no managerial experience at all yeah and that didn't work out very well though well no but uh, he, he knew the club eh yeah you know? uh, James says likes Blanc and Zidane rates Pogba as a player and a person nice one Pogba is a typical millennial emojis hairstyle handshakes and dancing everything but a footballer says uh, old man James who um, I, I suspect wouldn't be a great uh, communicator in the dressing rooms but um, I don't know I do think that a lot of that stuff the criticism of the players and their social media profiles and their brand is massively overblown that's yeah. who people are and, 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 and I mean and you also okay look the, the France documentary in the summer I mean that's obviously packaged and presented in, in a particular way but it still does show that Pogba like you know at a point in time when he focuses and when he's really sort of tuned in 
can be a positive presence, yeah, you know, but- and and. I mean, and it's funny, just go show the international football, like, to this millennial emoji-loving player, whatever it might be, like, it meant something to him, and it's almost like he's got into this weird comfort zone at United, where it doesn't matter to him that much. Yeah. But if it, if it somehow can be made to matter to him, he's, yeah. worth, he's worth having around, you know? You've got to think there's a way of, 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 of bringing that out but just, like, just on, on a regular the, basis, you know? On the idea of distractions, like France this summer is such a great case study why all this stuff that Roy Keane and Gary Neville says is just complete bullshit. Antoine Griezmann pretended he was LeBron James on the eve <laughs> yeah, of the World Cup yeah, and made yeah. a documentary called The Decision, which yeah. had the worst ending of any documentary ever. <laughs> like this guy, this was a man preoccupied about his brand and making a cute little film about what club he was going to play for next season. They won the World Cup. Yeah, it's true. That documentary was an affront to humanity. Really, it was dreadful. You know, but yeah, they it, still it doesn't to, matter. Is the thing though? Well, they managed to pull it together. Yeah, like, I mean, Griezmann didn't have a great tournament apparently, though. You know, but yeah. they, you know, you can you can spin it in whatever way. Um, if Jesse Lingard played for Crystal Palace he wouldn't even be their best player he's massively overrated along with Rashford I, look I, I think that there's a possibility I'd say there's a possibility he would be their best player well I mean he wouldn't be better than Zaha but then there's a point in, a case in point there too Don't. take someone out of Manchester United bubble dropped them a small bit then the Premier League and you realise actually no they're still pretty good yeah I, we were saying I don't, I don't know I don't know what type of player Jesse Lingard is I think we have a fair idea what Marcus Rashford could be if he finds a manager who says I'm going to pick you every game mm. you know I'm taking the crack I guess yeah the okay uh, Lingard you, you might necessarily drop Lingard into a dressing room and like build a team around him but he, he can be very effective in decent sides like with England in the summer and stuff as well he had his moments uh, De Gea will probably leave says Cormac I don't know I, like, I think that if the, I think if you get the right inspirational manager comes in and says we're the biggest football club in the world we're going to go and win stuff now. Let's go. And you ship out some of the dead wood. And give him the biggest contract any goalkeeper's ever had in the history of sports. That would definitely yeah. help. But you think De Gea at some stage is going to... He wants to try that really elite Spanish club thing. Surely. Um, yeah. Is he going to stay f- like forever? Aren't those jobs already taken? Well, no, no, no. Like, they have loads of... Yeah, you know, but... I, I, still, I still have this niggling feeling that at some stage he's going to, he's going to head and try that out. Um, yeah, okay. So we'd uh, mixed response, it's fair to say, to... Um, uh, having uh, Mark Goldsmith on a little bit earlier on. <laughs> uh, but sometimes you've got to try stuff, right? <laughs> but by mixed, you mean wholly negative? Almost entirely negative, yeah. But then people hate, people hate football fans. It's like football fans shouldn't have a voice. I think football fans should have a voice. I have said I didn't catch this, Cher. Okay. You, you were in sl- sleep. It was before you were up. No, so. no, I was, I, was, I was on the way in slowly. But um, yeah. <laughs> I'll be catching up now. You've, you've still sold it to me, though. <laughs> <laughs> you can check it back on uh, all of our social channels. Um, Off the Ball is back on the radio tonight uh, from 7 o'clock on News Talk. We're back here tomorrow morning at 7.45. And check out our shiny new website, uh, offtheball.com, with uh, all of our good videos and uh, much easier access to our podcast. And now you can also listen to this show every morning and... Um, Keep the thing minimised. The player will still work. It's a new adventure in technology. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, Dan. OTB AM. Thanks to Screwfix.ie. Championing the trade with a dedicated call centre.